LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is David Goodstein, author of Out of Gas, The End of the Age of Oil, and co-author of the recently published Climate Change and the Energy Problem. In this stark assessment of our civilization's dire predicament, uh, David shares his views on the scientific, political, economic and social aspects of the looming global energy crisis. A crisis which has barely begun to unfold, but has already begun to undermine the comfortable, complacent lifestyles which so many of us take for granted. Hello and welcome, David Goodstein, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm happy to be here. Now, David, we're here today to discuss um, the overall um, energy situation that the entire world is facing, but particularly the industrialized parts of the world that are very much dependent on oil. And <clears throat> the oil situation that we're facing um, was brought to a lot of people's attention back in 2004 when you wrote a small but best-selling book called Out of Gas. And some of the material in there has recently uh, been presented again in a new book called Climate Change and the Energy Problem, which you've co-authored with Michael Intrilligator. And uh, before we dive into that, um, many people who've listened to this broadcast before will be familiar with um, the concept of peak oil. Uh, but for those who aren't, perhaps you could just sum up the main points of what peak oil actually is. Well, when oil was first discovered in 1859, uh, there was a lot of oil to be found. But uh, as the oil became found, the discoveries slackened off and will eventually reach a peak if it hasn't reached a peak already, after which it will decline forever. That is the, the recovery of oil. Um, and the declining rate of recovery of oil, coupled with the uh, increasing demand for oil, will lead to catastrophe worldwide. Now, um, quite a frightening prospect, really. Um, but it occurs to me that I mean, most of the resources, well, probably all the resources on the Earth are not, you know, none of them are finite. Um, there's not much on the Earth that really renews itself, certainly not in a, a human time scale. So d d is the situation really that we built up um, an almost global industrialized system, society and an economy, we must have known all along that the resource that we were using uh, to do that w was going to run out eventually. So, I mean, was there just widespread ignorance about this or did we really underestimate the scale that our oil use would eventually grow to? I think that nobody thought about the, the fact that the oil would run out. The people just pretended that the uh, rate of discovery of oil would increase exponentially forever. Uh, unrealistic though that, though that might be, they they made that assumption. So we basically painted ourselves into a major corner with this. 
That's correct. Uh-huh. Now, some of us are old enough to remember um, the oil crisis in the 1970s and 1973-74, and there was another um, oil crisis in 1979, which I believe was related to Iran. And now the thing about that was the the upset caused by that was really quite significant, and uh, particularly a lot of Americans will remember this, you know, of a certain generation. But two things about those oil crises, of course, is that they were temporary. It didn't last that long. And they were also, yeah, they were right. also artificial uh, in the sense that they weren't caused by a problem sourcing the supply. Now, if it, perhaps you could say something about the problems that were faced at that time and then you know, how much exponentially worse you know, it could be if we, uh, if, with the ramifications of the peak oil uh, thesis. Well, at the time, uh, the OPEC missions decreased their production of oil by 5% or so. That created a crisis in long lines of gas stations in the United States and and uh, crying for our way of life and so on. Uh, the the peak that's coming, or has already come, I don't know, uh, will not be artificial. It will not be temporary. It will be permanent. And uh, that's uh, a major problem. Obviously, the, the, the oil crises of the 70s um, sort of came upon us in a relatively short time frame. Um, so there wasn't really much preparation that could be done for that such. Um, with the uh, scenario of peak oil, now we're not looking at like an overnight collapse. We're looking at, you know, our use of oil has been gradually increasing, you know, throughout the 20th and the early part of the 21st century. Um, once we, if we are, there's some speculation about exactly where this peak will occur in, in production. Um, but the other side is going to be a slow grinding step down process as we gradually get used to having less oil, and also, of course, much higher prices. Yes, that's correct. Um, the the uh, rate at which we can produce oil will decrease, uh, the demand for oil will increase, and uh, the results will be catastrophic. I, I don't see any way out of that. Uh, so the point I just made about it not being overnight, I mean, is there anything, a lot of, commentators have said that we have basically left it too late to do anything meaningful about this. Um, but given that we do, there is still a lot of oil around, I mean, even if the prices are higher and there's a bit more, um, how should we put it, competition or even conflict for what is left, that we you know, we do have time to adjust to this. Do you think we're going to be able to do that in an orderly way? Well, I don't think we're going to do that in an orderly way, although I could be wrong. But um, I think that... Uh, the lack of our precious oil uh, is something that we don't react to in, in, a, in a nice, linear, suitable way, and um, uh, it's likely to be catastrophic. One thing that's easy to uh, uh, forget, unless you're uh, steeped in this information, is that it's, we're not just talking about oil as fuel here. Uh, if you walk into the average, say, supermarket, um, almost everything you see in your line of sight will have oil either in its production or its transportation, uh, some manufacture, um, all forms of plastic, chemicals, pharmaceuticals. Um, it's not like we can just stop using oil, uh, find alternate fuel for vehicles, even if one existed. I mean, oil's in, in everything almost. That's right. Uh, oil is the basic ingredient of many petrochemicals that, uh, that, that, that inform our entire civilization. So we, we must have oil. Now, we're finding oil in, in places that 
uh, didn't exist before, deep water wells and so on. But that's a sign of desperation more than more, more than uh, a solution. Uh, well, speaking of desperation, um, are you familiar with some people in the in the abiotic oil camp? Yes, I've heard of it, and I I, I know uh, what what happened. What happened was that some wells were dug uh, to to find abiotic oil, and they found some oil, but probably the result of the digging itself, and uh, the whole effort went bluey. Mm-hmm. And another issue is uh, we're often the way that. Um, say particularly in industrialized west the way our retail um, networks work i'm thinking specifically here of food distribution um, we have lots of just in time um, where stores don't hold a lot of uh, inventory difficult to do with fresh food anyway but basically the old adage goes that um, if food stopped getting delivered um, to you know urban centers that we'd have three days before all the stores would be completely empty and we do have an issue here in that, again, not just a lot of the things that we consume and use, but our entire transportation and distribution network of everything from, you know, essentials like food and water right down to things we would regard as luxuries. But the whole gamut, um, again, entirely dependent on oil and oil derivatives. That's correct. Uh, without oil, we can't, deliver, we can't deliver our goods. We can't do anything. Uh, oil is fundamental to our civilization. And it seems that problem not so much in Europe because of the way, you know how old a lot of the cities are, but uh, in the U.S., uh, your infrastructure was, you know, so much of it was built up, you know, during the 1950s and 60s, and it was very much geared towards the mindset of that time. So you have sprawling suburbs, um, you know, houses on large plots. Uh, you don't have necessarily um, amenity day-to-day amenities um, close to these suburbs. Um, involves a lot of commuting into city centres to to work and uh, you know to shop, leisure, retail, all of that. So although there are obviously some changes have occurred in that, and it's not the same across the entire continent, um, America has been very much designed for car use. Yes, um, we we Americans typically drive hundred ton or, or many ton. Uh, uh, vehicles to, to work over 100 miles each day and back, and uh, that can't go on. But it does go on up to now. What do you think of the, uh, the reaction? Um, I'll ask you about America in particular with you, with you being American. Uh, the reaction to contraction of the economy that's occurred since the, the financial crash in 2008 and basically people having to get used to getting by on less, um, it does seem certainly from some of the tone that's coming out with the election debates at the moment, that um, many Americans, I don't want to generalize here, but many Americans are, are not dealing with this particularly well, and they really would like to get what we would call back to normal as soon as possible. But even if you take the financial crisis out of the equation, uh, the energy situation looks like you know that this a lot of things about our lifestyles are going away, albeit slowly, but probably permanently. Yes, the the energy problem has been put off because of the economy. The economy has become the the number one problem in the United States, but the energy problem uh, exists and will continue to exist and will continue to to prove uh, uh, most difficult. And of course, we saw with the reaction to efforts to um, deal with um, CO2 emissions and, and Kyoto, what have you, and the American political response to that is that it's whatever is being said behind the scenes 
ideas of cutting energy use in the name of uh, certainly the greenhouse gas situation doesn't go over terribly well with mainstream America. No, Americans love their gasoline, they love their oil, and they're not going to give it up for, to, to reduce carbon dioxide. Uh, that's uh, a great tragedy because carbon dioxide uh, has uh, terrible effects on everything in the United States. Do you think that's what is at the roots of the... I mean, there's no doubt more that affects the, the global climate than just, you know, human activity. Um, we can't deny the influence of the of the sun, for example, but... The global warming, um, the people who deny the extent or importance of anthropomorphic, um, anthropogenic, sorry, global warming, is that rooted basically in a, a desire to not have to face this energy problem? Yes, it is certainly rooted in a desire not to have to face the energy problem, and, and the energy problem is going to bite us in the end. Now, you made some reference briefly there a moment ago to um, alternative sources of oil, and... Uh, we hear a lot about um, uh, shale sands and um, heavy oil, but uh, you, I think you said it was a sign of desperation. But there's also a situation there that you know people say, "Oh, there's X number of barrels of oil in you know in these tar sands, whatever." But there's the net energy situation that has to be brought into the equation, and that is to say, "Well, yes, but how much energy does it actually take? You know, how much oil are we going to burn?" getting to this other oil and when you look at the figures on that um, these heavy oils and tar sands and what have you they compare very unfavorably their net energy ratio compared to the, the low-hanging fruit so to speak yeah you have to strip mine two tons of, uh, of, of ore to uh, release one gallon of a fluid that's not rich enough to, to distill into gasoline so hydrogen must be added to it uh, adding hydrogen involves reducing the hydrogen from methane and involves a great deal of energy in, in its own right. And so uh, it's not clear that, that there's an energy gain in uh, heavy oil. You get, you get the oil out, but uh, at tremendous cost. Well, this reminds me somewhat of the uh, ethanol situation because uh, perhaps you can fill us in with the, some of the details here, but my reading of it, cursory reading, is that the ethanol is actually a net energy loser but the political establishment need to be seen to be doing something, and that's what the uh, ethanol thing is about. Yes. Um, many people think that ethanol is an energy loser. I don't know whether it is or not, but it might be uh, when you take into account the, the gasoline that's required to transport it to the, from where it's made to where it's used and so on. But ethanol is, is probably best at uh, best break-even but it does add to the uh, the reserves of fuel. Now, what about the natural gas? Is certainly, we hear a lot about in Europe, and I know there are large reserves of it in various parts of the world, and that's being touted, you know, in a, certainly in the mainstream media as the, the thing that's going to plug the gap. Um, but it's not, not just as straightforward as that, is it? Well, natural gas uh, is uh, a useful fuel. Some years ago, it was thought that the... Hubbard's peak for natural gas, which is just as real as the Hubbard's peak for oil, it was only 10 or 20 years behind the Hubbard's peak for oil, but more of it has been discovered recently, and so natural gas might go on for a while, but it's a finite resource like everything else, and so it can't be depended on to, to last us forever. Can natural gas be adapted or used for 
you know, most or all of the primary uses for oil that are current? I, I think it can, um, either in the form of compressed natural gas or chemically transformed into a liquid fuel. Uh, it can uh, substitute for oil uh, very nicely, but its supply is finite. Now, I'm not sure what the, the coal mining situation is in the U.S. As I understand it, there's still a lot of coal burned for energy generation. Uh, we know that China uses colossal quality, uh, quantities of, of coal. Uh, in fact, they, uh, it's quite scary if you look at the figures for uh, the rate at which they're building coal-fired power stations. And I know that coal mining in the UK has all but died out. That was kind of shut off in the 80s for largely political reasons, I, I think. But that's another thing that's being talked about, and there's certainly uh, rumblings uh, in this country uh, along the lines of reopened coal mines. But again, enormous problems associated with that. We cannot just, you know, go back to using coal. Yeah, coal is the dirtiest fuel of all because uh, its product is almost pure carbon dioxide, and the supply of coal is finite, even though it's very large. It's finite. And the Hubbard's peak for coal will, will occur in this century if we turn to coal as a substitute for oil. So I don't think that that's a solution either. Uh, also, in, in mentioning that coal being the dirtiest fuel of all, of course, what we have to remember, we've mentioned the, the global warming situation. And, you know, wherever people are politically on that spectrum, um, certainly there is such a thing as pollution. So even if somebody doesn't believe that human activity is a major component in glo global warming, certainly burning our way through oil and coal and natural gas, for that matter, produces all sorts of pollution that is not debatable. And if we to follow the course that we seem to be on, which is switch to natural gas as much as possible, reopen coal mines, carry on burning coal like there's no tomorrow, that has a huge effect on the planet as well. So it's not just decreasing, diminishing energy supply, it's the environmental issue. Yes, it's true. And the environmental issue is very important, but uh, the decreasing supply will bite us in the end. And you're saying... Your best information, you know, we're talking, looking at peaks in oil, natural gas, and in coal. If we were to maintain our current rate of usage, all of those are going to peak this century. I think probably that by the end of the century, we will be out of fossil fuels or, or running out of fossil fuels. That is to say, we will be past the peak in all of the uh, categories. Uh, people talk about new discoveries, and obviously new discoveries are made of oil, even to today, but there can't be that many areas of the planet that c could potentially have very substantial uh, supplies of any of these uh, energy sources that haven't already been um, surveyed, I would have thought. No, there, there probably aren't. The main discoveries in recent times have been deep water wells, and that carries extreme danger as we all know, after the Gulf oil spill. And so I, I would not depend on a new discovery to uh, ameliorate a situation. Yeah, the, the Deepwater Horizon disaster, that's very much a, a function of the not only the extremes uh, to which we're having to go to find oil and, and other energy resources, but the, the frequency that it's happening, that is to say the proportion of the exploration being carried out that is actually at the more extreme end of the danger scale. Yes, that's quite true. Now, what about renewables? Um, I think that it's whatever the optimism might have been um, a decade or more ago regarding, you know, solar, wind, wave power, things of that nature. Uh, it's rapidly becoming clear 
Now, some people are holding the line and maintaining otherwise, but it's rapidly becoming clear that these are never, under the way things stand, going to be anything other than a small percentage of our energy needs. They are uh, currently a small percentage of our energy needs. Uh, they may increase to some extent, but it's very unlikely that they will overcome the lack of oil. Yeah, because you can't, um, the, the issue as well is storing energy. That's certainly an issue when it comes up. For not all solar systems, for example, are adapted to store energy and uh, wind turbines. I mean, no matter how much you generate there, storage is, is something that people don't, I don't think they fully understand. I think that, I'm not sure what people, you know, lay people think happens, you know, from point the point of generation through to, to usage, but storing energy, again, is a major issue. Storing electrical energy is a major issue because you can't, you, you can store small amounts in batteries, but that's, that's uh, trivial compared to the need. So the storage of energy is a major issue. Another thing that we uh, put some faith in, and so they, quote unquote, whoever they are, uh, boffins, eggheads, science, scientists, that they're going to come up with um, an as yet undiscovered technology that's going to get us out of this jam. But that's not really a plan of action, is it? That's just a sort of a vague hope. I mean, I, I don't know what, what work is being done. I mean, what is there a is there a cutting edge in new energy technology? Is work being done or is it very much a case of, you know, that innovation in, in this area is actually in decline like a lot of other things? Well, probably the most uh, hopeful uh, substitute for oil is nuclear fusion. Uh, nuclear fusion has been uh, on the horizon for 50 years uh, and uh, it's still on the horizon and not coming any closer, but uh, it's the primary hope for uh, a, a long-term solution. Uh, people might be thinking, oh, well, we've already got nuclear power stations, but there's a difference between nuclear fusion and nuclear fission, isn't there? Yes, there is a difference. And nuclear fission is, is a well-established technology, uh, and we have nuclear fission plants. About 20% of the United States electrical energy is, is generated in nuclear power plants, but that's nuclear fission. Nuclear fusion is quite different and much more difficult. Uh, the supply of fuel would be uh, virtually unlimited. It would not add to the greenhouse effect and so on. It's, it's, uh, it's an ideal solution, but it's not one that seems to be within reach. The problem that we have with, the, with nuclear systems around the world at the minute is obviously storage of waste material. I mean, out of all the decades these things have been running, and again, as I understand it, no one has actually figured out a safe way to store or otherwise dispose of the material. And all of the waste nuclear material that's ever been generated, again, as far as I know, is sitting around, some of it in safer places than others, but it's all still here. We still can't find a way to get rid of it. That's quite true. We can't find any way of getting rid of it, and it's still sitting around in storage, uh, usually at the plants where it was used. Yeah, and of course, potential there, as we saw with the Fukushima uh, disaster in Japan, um, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what the latest is there. It's been a while since I looked at it. But, I mean, that, that surely has put the nuclear case back a step or two, has it not? It certainly has. Um, the, uh, the disaster in Japan had worldwide implications, as did the Chernobyl disaster earlier. But they, they, those disasters are small compared to the disasters that have occurred in the history of coal mining. 100,000 men and boys died in coal mining incidents in the UK in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, nothing like that has ever happened in nuclear energy. Do you think then that the the sort of almost subconscious fear 
of nuclear is rooted in the fact that uh, we have nuclear weapons and we don't really well you know, i think I, I think that that has a lot to do with it although it's not completely true uh, part of it is the fact that the, that the radiation is in, in, invisible and uh, uh, people feel that they, they're subject to to uh, to an invisible uh, danger and they don't like it no, and I suppose if you were in the middle of uh, smog in Victorian London, you could. It was very apparent the, the the environmental pollution being caused by your energy usage. Um, as you say, nuclear can be lethal, you know, above very small doses, and um, yeah. but invisible. I, I personally um, feel that the the great risks that come with nuclear, uh, you know, fission, i.e. the systems we have right now, not the hope of nuclear fusion for the future. Do you, do you feel then that the, uh, I get the impression that you do, that the, the benefits kind of outweigh the risks? Well, the benefits outweigh the the difficulties, certainly, as long as the nuclear fuel lasts. But but we only have enough nuclear fuel for 10 to 25 years uh, at, at the rate of 10 terawatts, and that's not enough. Now, is that a case of that more nuclear fuel needs to be produced, or is that kind of a function of the fact that the fuel for nuclear reactors, like anything else on the Earth, is in a limited supply? You know, it will run out one day, too. Yeah, it, it will run out one day, too. Um, the, the technology of discovering uranium has, is still being developed, and so it's not final yet. Uh, but um, uh, the, the prospects for supplies are not... Uh, internet. Now, I read something recently in a, a UK newspaper. It was in the an article in the Independent on the 19th of October, and the headline was, uh, and I, I'm actually starting to see more of this sort of thing. It's not very, not very often. It's not very common, but there is more than there used to be. Uh, and the headline uh, was exclusive: uh, Pioneering scientists turned fresh air into petrol, gasoline in massive boost in fight against energy crisis. And it just sounded like something from the Onion. You know, like this is must be nonsense. And I think is, a lot of these things are nonsense. Um, they're, they're just pie in the sky. Yeah, and yet I discussed this with some other people who are concerned about the energy situation. I said, but and yet here we have qualified people uh, in a, a million dollar plant, actual processes going on there. Uh, there's a, a newspaper here, very moderate, not known for sensationalism, politically neutral, uh, no particular agenda or axe to grind. So to all intents and purposes, this looks credible. And I thought that that's such a mainstream arena for something like this to appear in. Yes, but it, it's not making, uh, the kind of impact that you'd expect it to make if, if it were real. And so uh, I, I would be skeptical. Yeah, I suppose that's true, isn't it? I mean, if somebody it's, uh, really does come up with a way to get, uh, well, first of all, impossible for the universe as we understand it. You can't get energy from nothing. You can only change energy from one form into another. But if um, if we do discover a, you know a magic bullet, then it, it really would change things. Then it's not just going to get stuck in you know page eleven of one newspaper with so little fanfare. That's correct. That's absolutely right. And of course, the, the net energy uh, that these guys seem to have not necessarily taken into account. Uh, we talked about that earlier in the context of tar sands and heavy oil. How does the net energy of uh, the other two big uh, like natural gas and and uh, and coal, how do they compare currently to that of oil? I, I think that the total amount of energy available in the form of gas and, and coal is probably comparable to the total amount of energy available in 
or that was once available in the form of oil. But uh, and it's getting used up rapidly as China and India come online as car using nations and so on. So uh, we may be able to muddle along for a while on coal and, and natural gas as our supplies of energy, but uh, that's going to come to an end. And of course, another side point most people probably haven't thought of is that it, oil is used in the production uh, mining of coal and uh, of natural gas. For example, there are, they don't use coal-powered vehicles to, to mine coal and haul it away. They don't use gas-powered vehicles, as far as I know, in production of gas. <laughs> no, they don't. So that's another complicating factor, you know. Yes, that is. Now, it seems to me that there's a problem here of political will to actually tackle this because it becomes political suicide, politically impossible to address this in the public arena. And if any politician stands up and is open about this and said, this is the situation, this is what we need to do, regardless of what his you know, program might be, but said, we do need to address this, people are not going to get listened to. We see that just within, with so many issues in politics at the minute, um, all sorts of things that urgently need to be addressed that are swept under the carpet because they're bad news stories. That's, that's quite true. And uh, th this is the worst story of all. And uh, politicians have very little to do with it. So, I mean, ultimately, are politicians, is it politics, the political arena, where this thing is going to get addressed and if it's not going to get solved, at least dealt with, or do you think eventually that will get bypassed as when the situation becomes more urgent? No, I, I think that I think that there will eventually be a wake-up call as the fuel flies diminish and the uh, demand increases, and uh, it will become a political issue once again. Uh, but uh, it may be too late. Well, this is the case then. Not that I'm necessarily in favour of myself, but this is the case for uh, technocracy, isn't it? Really, um, where scientists and other qualified professionals make decisions that affect our survival and you know not basically this political machine that's basically operating for quite different motivations yes uh, scientists will make decisions and uh, that have important effects on our civilization but i don't think that the scientists can solve this problem by themselves well and also yet more complicating factors come in the uh, form of the, the the global nature of this problem, uh, we've seen already with the climate change situation. Trying to get even half the countries of the world to operate uh, in you know in concert to achieve a particular end is fraught with difficulty. And we saw with the, the Kyoto thing, a uh, major player like the U.S. just turn around and say, "No, we're not having anything to do with it." Yes, um, the 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 underdeveloped world uh, needs to develop and. Uh, for that, they, they need oil in great, great supply. The United States is unwilling to give up its uh, precious oil, and so uh, there's uh, uh, a, an irreconcilable di disagreement between the two. Basically, although the living standards for many, by no means all, there's still a lot of um, rural poverty in China, but you know, there's a lot of the cities have grown up and a lot of people there are doing a lot better than they were 10, 20 years ago. But... The idea that's of the myth of progress that says at some point in the future, most people in the world are going to have a color TV and air conditioning and a car. As things stand, however unfair it is, that's not going to happen. 
No, it seems very unlikely that it's going to happen. But uh, the the third world wants wants in. They want the the the, the perks that we have, and uh, they're coming to get it. Speaking of the third world and the, the global nature of this, there's then the thorny issue of population, because if there were less people, we could use less energy. Perfectly stands to reason. Completely logical. More of us there are, the more energy we need, even if that energy usage is not spread evenly and even if it is gradually declining. Um, but we see the population of the world gradually going upwards. And I don't know about your reading of the situation, but there are people who are calling for, you know, voluntary action to have less children, reduce the population that way. Uh, there's other people that want more draconian measures along the lines of China's one child policy. Um, and how much of an issue do you think going forward um, population growth is with regards to energy? Well, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a vast issue. We have almost 6 billion people in the world today. There's expected to be 9 or 10 billion people by the end of the century. Uh, the, the world has never uh, supported that kind of population before. Uh, it's not known whether it can support that kind of population in the future. Uh, and it's a terrible, terrible problem. And a little bit like uh, with the financial crisis, we see that certainly the U.S. government and the U.K. government and some of the governments in the European Union, despite the fact that they're having austerity, cutbacks, tax increases in some places, um, benefits uh, being cut in others, uh, public spending being cut. If you look at their borrowing balance sheets, you know overall that's on the increase. And it seems to reflect the situation that with all the awareness that there's been for the last 20 years about climate change, global warming, going green, alternative energy, clean energy, renewable energy, enormous uh, increase in awareness and lots of you know action being taken, uh, most of it locally, not so much nationally. But we have a situation where our energy use overall continues to increase. I mean, this is mind boggling. Yes, that's quite true. Um, uh, and I don't know what to do about it. Oh, well, <laughs> that's fairly blunt. I mean, if you were in, if you were energy minister or whatever the U.S. equivalent of that is, what, and you had the president's ear, what would you be saying to him? I would be saying that we have to decrease our use of oil and increase the use of alternatives. And the president says to you, look, Dave, <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> You're asking me to get up on TV and tell these people that, no, I can't do it. I'll be out of office. And that's, again, part of the problem, isn't it? I'll be out of office at the next election, I'll be completely unelectable. Uh, my successor will come along and get elected by opposing this stuff that we're trying to bring in. Where, where do you go from there? Well, that, that is a big, big problem. And uh, it may be the, the most fundamental problem of all. And I don't know the solution. Are you aware of how much awareness there is behind the scenes? Um, because we could speculate and say, okay, we have a political front here that's being maintained that, you know, the myth of progress I referred to uh, before, onwards and upwards, you know, if we'll get the financial crisis out of the way, then we'll get back to growth. Do you think, are you aware of action behind the scenes where people actually understand the nature of this problem? Not necessarily, you know, academics or, you know, just other interested parties, but people who are in a position to, you know, get some wheels moving, get some things, maybe some programs moving in the right direction, so that when the time comes, some work has already been done. I'm sure that there are such people, uh, but I don't know who they are and I don't know what, what they're doing because uh, they're not doing very much. 
No, well, again, it's it, my thinking was that perhaps there was stuff that could um, be done in the meantime, as it were, before it could really be talked about openly, so that we're not completely unprepared. But um, you know, perhaps I'm being naive in thinking that. That would be that would be very nice, but I don't see any, any possibility. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even thinking of you know, as I say, some sort of magic solution, but just that somebody you know enough intelligent, uh, qualified people would realize what we're facing and say, you know, we've got to get something prepared here so that we can maybe wheel it out as things degenerate and think something that might help us somewhere just simple preparation in the way that you know if you were you've had some storms recently on the east coast of the u.s you know just like maybe we should go out before it gets here and get some cans of food get some bottled water that type of thing well look uh when i first got into this business nobody paid any attention to it it was just unspeakable it was on on outside of the public discourse now it's become second nature to people to to pay attention to this, but not to really pay attention, but to give lip service to uh, to the problem and talk about renewables and talk about uh, all this kind of stuff. But it's not really happening. There's, there's no no movement to ameliorate this problem. A big part of this uh, challenge that we face with regard to peak oil and our energy situation going forward. Yes, there's a huge technological challenge to do the best with what resources we have left to innovate and try and bring new systems online. But it occurs to me that at least as big as those as those challenges is the psychological barrier that people face. And we've alluded to this several times. Getting an awareness of this uh, and realizing how big the ramifications are, it's very difficult for a lot of people to take the idea on board. And for them, denial that might eventually lead to disaster is almost a preferable option. Yes, that's quite true. Um, the, 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 the deniers, the people who will not face this fact, living in a, in, in a, uh, a, a strange universe, but their universe is our universe, and that's the difficulty. Um, when you wrote um, Out of Gas, as I said, that was 2004, and it's not a big book. It's quite a compact and very succinct as I said at the start, it did seem to reach, certainly it's you know, got a lot of reviews on Amazon and a lot of people have bought it. I suppose was your aim trying to bring uh, sort of a wider awareness uh, in layman's terms to, you know, sort of dual public so they could get a handle on this? Yes, that's, that's correct. That's what I was trying to do. And do you think that there's, I mean, you would think that government would have a responsibility to ensure that, uh, you know, the public is informed about major issues that affect them, but all the people talking about uh, peak oil, even though, as you say, um, this is now not uncommon, it still seems to be people that are portrayed and painted as being on the fringes, you know, on the margins. Yes, that's 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 quite true. Um, I don't think they are on the fringes. I don't think they are on the margins. I think they are the the, the central uh, players in our, in our in our world. And what are the oil companies doing about all this? Because on the face of it, it looks like it's just, um, you know, business as usual, just squeeze as much oil out of every situation as we can, make as much money as possible. I mean, there must be a lot of oil field executives and scientists who see what they're what we're facing. I, I think that the oil companies, by and large, do have some inkling of what we're facing, but they 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 are fastened to the next the next quarter rather than the long term. And that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, of course, it's that, that 
uh, also has a, yet another echo of the financial crash, isn't it? That uh, stuff was focused on even not even 24 hours of trading, never mind what might be a good uh, stock trade for a decade or something like that. That's but, right. Uh, in this new book, as I say, which you've co-authored, uh, just to mention it again, it's Climate Change and the Energy Problem. Now, this not only brings together the physical science that you laid out in Out of Gas, it then brings uh, the economics into the question. And I feel this could be even more effective than Out of Gas, actually, because it begins to imagine um, basically some of the effects. You know, what, what will this mean uh, for our day-to-day -day lives? Yes, that's quite true. My control gator has contributed uh, mightily to the appeal of the book. And I think that uh, the, the, the book does have the possibility of presenting uh, a, a realistic situation for the world. I mean, obviously you can look around and we see there's a lot of problems in the world and we can see easily see how many of them are either directly or indirectly related to the energy situation. I mean, for example, all the wars in the Middle East related to that. But with regard to some of the specific bullet points we've laid out about peak oil and how that plays out. I mean, what signs do you think that we can already see that can be directly attributed to this? And how do you basically envisage the, the, you know, the coming decades in terms of best we can hope for and worst we might expect? Well, the, the, the best we can hope for is that this serves as a wake-up call and we all get to work on uh, developing alternative uh, supplies of fuel. The worst is that uh, it will debilitate our uh, our efforts, and we will dissolve in in, uh, in 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 a world no longer able to support itself. And if somebody said to you, "Well, okay, so I can see how long term there might be some issues, but you know, it's business as usual out there." Where would you, what could you point to if an individual was was unconvinced that, that this is already unfolding? Most people that I uh, encounter personally do see the situation the way I do, although they're, they're not concerned about it because it's not an immediate problem. Uh, but uh, I, I do not come across in my personal life the people who are deniers, who, who, who explicitly uh, deny that this is going on. But they, they certainly exist, and I, I'm sorry for them. It's easy to look at the enormity of the situation and feel rather helpless, if we're looking at it from an individual point of view, perhaps we could say, oh, well, if we devise ways to reduce our own personal energy use and make our situation as sustainable as possible and and possibly, you know, encourage others to do the same, that's probably about as much as we can do. But it, it may be that that's actually in the context of the bigger situation, you know, almost pointless. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes, I agree. I think it's pointless for us to personally to... Uh, consume less energy because uh, it, it's not going, going to, to have a, a drop in the bucket effect on the larger situation. So I, I think it's it's useless for us to to act locally and think globally. So I mean, your day to day life, surely with this all at the back of your mind or perhaps at the forefront of it a lot of time, um, do you make different decisions to the ones that you made earlier in your life? Somewhat different decisions. I, I drive a hybrid car, for example, uh, a Volt, but, but by and large, I don't know. Okay, well, the bottom line to all this is the big question of, like, can civilization survive? And I think it's clear from what we've discussed that in its current form, it can't. Uh, of course, there have been different forms of civilization before. Uh, they came and went, and they had their time. Do you think that we can make 
from this a transition to something so that there will be a civilization for our children and grandchildren it'll be very different but or are we at the, the risk of sort of hitting a wall so hard with this that we really can do undo ourselves well we could go back to the world that existed in the 18th century before all of this started to occur but that would require diminishing the world's population by 95%, and that's uh, a, a draconian measure that I don't think we're prepared to take. No, well, it's even even uh, you know, the most genocidal maniac would struggle to get the world population down by 95%. That's right. Okay, well, what's your personal take? I mean, re- how realistic is it that, that people are on... I mean, take the population question out of the equation, because it's just too thorny just even as an intellectual exercise how feasible do you think it would be to get back to that sort of sustainable uh, slightly more primitive lifestyle well i hope we can uh, afford to do it i hope we can arrange to do it but i doubt it we are too too accustomed to our comfortable way of life to uh, go back to uh, a, a former way of life but uh, who knows maybe we can well, David Goodstein, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for another week. A stark assessment indeed. I hope and trust that you can take this not as a cause for hopelessness, but a call to action. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website where you'll find an archive programs on many equally fascinating and important topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.